Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, everyone's favorite producer and really all around human being, David Eilenberg. Dave is now Chief Creative Officer at ITV America. He guides creative strategy. He leverages intellectual property, and he helps grow the group's six vertical production labels, including ITV Entertainment, Left Field Pictures, Sirens Media, Think Factory Media, High Noon Entertainment, and Good Caper Content. So he's got a big job. Dave cut his teeth in the industry working on game shows, and that led him to Mark Burnett's company, where he worked on the pilot of The Apprentice. And there he really learned how to produce a competition show when all of New York City is your set. He went on to help create Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, which was the quickest show ever from pitch to series. He talks about what that show was like to put together at lightning speed. He also talks about the pressure to reboot Queer Eye for the Straight Guy into Queer Eye, which obviously became a huge success for Netflix. And we talk about what it's like being the head of a massive company and where he thinks the business is heading in the next 10 years. Well, hello, Dave Eilenberg. Thank you for being here. Um, thank you for letting me invite myself onto your podcast. <laughs> I'm really excited to be here. You, you, you kind of invited yourself, but you kind of were invited in a public forum. So it, it sort of like goes both ways. Okay. Well, it's really, really nice to talk to you. It's so nice to talk to you. I know that you are a veteran podcast guest, so um, I just had to complete complete the the circle of of unscripted podcasts, and this will be your best interview yet. No pressure. I, I'm <laughs> up for that challenge. I hope I can deliver. I hope you can too. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you can. Um, I you know I. I, I did. So what I was joking about inviting you in a public forum. So for those of you who listen to my podcast with the development executives, uh, Matt Shamfield, Tom Huffman and Michelle Byer, I, I did a little round of a, a quick fire round at the end, kind of putting them on the spot and asking who their favorite executive was. And I think I, I may have started off the round by saying, I think we can all agree that, you know, one of the guys that everybody loves in this business is Dave Eilenberg. So no pressure, but um, have you heard of anyone nice who doesn't you. like you? <laughs> <laughs> I, ha- I have a list I can send you after the recording. Believe me, it okay, exists. <laughs> um, but no, it was so fun to to hear those three people on the podcast and ha- have them deservedly elevated that way. And, you know, when you have three people who have worked for you now getting interviews of your own, of their own, um, you'll accept the term veteran. So I'm fine with it. I do feel like. A veteran at this point. Yeah, I think it, it it's, I call it seasoned, a seasoned there veteran, right? Because we don't like to use the word old because that's just not flattering. And I- <laughs> Even that I can go for. But yeah, I mean, it's been, um, it's been 20 years or so since I've been in some part of the unscripted business or another, you know, starting writing on game shows um, with the weakest the- link. So that was how you got your start? Was that after college? Like, how did you get it? How did game shows start? Um, well, it was, uh, I, I, had been, I had been writing on a very short-lived MTV show called Head Trip, which was actually an animated show. I came out to be a writer like a lot of people in the unscripted business do. And had from where? Some, where did you come out from? 
Um, well, I, I went to Harvard as an undergrad and then came to USC and studied screenwriting and wrote a bunch of screenplays and sold some of them that never got made. My one actual feature credit is a story by credit on the Bratz movie, just to put that out there. <laughs> Not to um, brag. Wow. Um, yeah. So, so no, I came out to, to do that and then found my first actual writing gigs first in sort of like MTV animation. Um, uh, and then, uh, and then sort of in that first wave of digital stuff, right? So it was during the era of Icebox and Den, and I'm really showing my age by referencing these things, but there were all of these first generation digital content sites and NBC at the time was incubating one of their own called NBCX. It never launched because the sort of bottom started to come out of that market just as we were getting ready to do it. But that put me on the NBC lot. I ended up sort of circulating a little bit there, um, met with Matt Kunitz and Stuart Krasnow. And then Stuart was really the one who started giving me my first breaks into game show world on a show called Dog Eat Dog, uh, which lasted a couple of seasons. And then, you know, notably on The Weakest Link, which is now back after all of these years. So that was my first really proper long-term TV gig. I wrote questions. I wrote host copy. I did all the seasons of the primetime show and then the syndicated show. So the weakest link was actually like my first big entry point into um, this, this sphere of TV that's been so nice to me ever since. So you really kind of fell into it because like you said, I mean, you started out as a screenwriter writing fiction, you know, did you ever think when you were at USC, I'll end up writing questions for the weakest link? No, I just, I, I followed, I followed the jobs as I, as you know, I think so many of us do, right? But um, but I I loved I loved that stint, and I still love game shows. Um, you know, of all the many genres we get to produce, I I'm a nerd. I grew up watching them. My dad won a night of Jeopardy. Like it was sort of wait in, really, yeah, yeah. He won he won one night on Jeopardy. Um, so it's in the blood a little bit, and that was a great like it was just a really great entry point into it and so many amazing people were on that crew, not just Stuart and Phil Gurren who also ran that show, but Michael Agbabian and Dwight Smith who were my bosses at that time. Like it was just such a good group. Um, but yeah, that is, that is where it all began for me was on a game show set. That's amazing. So did that somehow then translate to Dismissed on MTV, which was also kind of a game show in its own way, dating game show? That happened sort of simultaneously through those um, MTV connections that I had made. We actually brought that in through Mike Nichols, who's now been at Pilgrim for quite a long time. But he was sort of like an in-house producer at MTV and, you know, gave me that first break um, writing on Head Trip and and sort of ushered in Dismissed. Um, and, you know, that was my first credit as a creator, which is such a funny one to think back on. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was all happening sort of around the same time. So then at that point you're having the success on game shows. Did you think I'm going to be a game show producer? Was that kind of like where the career was headed at that point? Yeah, I thought so. And then, you know, like a lot of, uh, a lot of people hit a patch where it wasn't happening for a while. I was an assistant happily, um, to, to Michael King, who's since passed, but was a really interesting and great mentor at that time. And then, um, and then, you know, into doing that and just sort of 
working for a living, got called for a two-week consultancy on The Apprentice, which kicked off a whole a whole other journey. Okay, well, we're going to stop right there. I mean, how can I, I have a million questions? So that was this the is going to be really hard given one of the rules of your show. We'll, I know. we'll do our best. I know, right? That's right. You know, I I bleep all references. I like how Huffman called him Voldemort. That was perfect. Yeah. So feel free to call him Baltimore. So wait, so this was the consultancy on the pilot of The Apprentice? So it was the first season of the show. Um, and uh, and it was really um, Ted Smith, who I don't know if you know, but he's an amazing sort of creative producer who I had gotten to know on Dog Eat Dog, as these things always happen, right? It's somebody who you've worked with. Um, and he was working in the task department, which was The Apprentice equivalent to the challenge department. They needed somebody on for a couple of weeks. I think it went a bit longer than that. It was like at the very sort of like ideation phase when the show was really still being figured out in LA. I did not go to New York for that season of the show, but then began working on that show full time starting in season two. Did any of the tasks that you came up with make it to season one? I don't recall if there were sort of season one tasks that I worked on. Um, that made it to air. I mean, I can, starting in season two, I can cite many of them still from memory. I mean, the first one that was mine that actually really made air and that I, you know, produced uh, soup to nuts was the Chow Bella gelato task where the teams were uh, tasked with coming up with original gelato flavors. Um, you know, it, it was such sort of seat of your pants stuff and, and a really massively complicated show to produce. Um, but would they give you the brand and then you had to come up with a challenge around the brand? It could happen any which way. I mean, as the show, as the show went on, it was more of an incoming call type thing, especially at its height, because, you know, the sponsors wanted to find ways to integrate their products, but you know, it could work the other way too. I mean, on that, on that Chow Bella task, it was more sort of like, we thought it would be fun to have an ice cream task. And I started cold calling independent ice cream companies who seemed like they would be a good fit. And like, you know, somebody in New Jersey picked up the phone and there we were. So crazy. So is that, so this is how I'm assuming this is how you got into Mark Burnett's company was through this consulting. Correct. Yeah. So it was that first little consulting gig. And then I worked on that show exclusively from seasons two through five. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. So before the podcast, I texted Jordan Malari, who was my yep. a good friend of mine, also my number two at my old company in Philly, because I was trying to remember how we originally met. And he confirmed that it was at Real Screen many years ago when you were at TNT TBS, which we'll get to. And um, and so I I said, did he work on The Apprentice? Because it's not on his bio. And I and he said, and I said, I'm not sure if he left it off intentionally or not. <laughs> and he said he didn't think you have, but you really did. Oh no, I totally I mean, did. You no, were it's way certainly in there. it's certainly on my IMDb. But yeah, no, I was I spent a long time on that show, first working um under Justin Hochberg, who you probably know, who was at that time head of the task department. And then I ended up becoming head of the task department for two seasons after that. So it was a lot of time in New York. It was a, you know, a million an hour a week job. Um, and from a producing standpoint, I'll, I'll regret saying this at some point, but it was still in many ways, the most challenging producing uh, of any show I've worked on. How so? 
because because it was at a stage where reality TV was still sort of new. And I think because we were audacious enough to consider the entire city of New York our game board, there were just so many unpredictable things that could happen in the actual sort of day-to-day producing of it. And it was, uh, you know, those contestants really desperately wanted to win. It was 24-7 activity. And, you know, you were also just trying to prep the next episode. I mean, this is in some ways no different from any reality TV show, but it was fairly overwhelming at the time. And it's it's hard to sort of remember now, but when hits were hits back however many years ago, you were also contending with like, we had the New York Post helicopter like flying over our contestants trying to figure out what was going on in the season to get a scoop on what was being filmed. So there were like a million and one different things to deal with. Wow. And then how many producers, how many tasks produced? Like, I can't remember. Was it two challenges per hour? Was it like a mini it was, and a big one? It was one, it was one challenge per hour. It was a fairly big task department and then an even bigger story department. My counterpart on that side as the show we're on was uh, Jamie Kniff, who's still a friend. Um, and it was just trying to, as with, any show trying to find the balance between the gameplay and the story. And then of course, in that case, also like what these sponsors were expecting from you for the zillions of dollars that they were spending. Right. I mean, I can't even imagine. And then of course there's the other factor, which is Voldemort himself. So how much were you interacting with him? Um, or if at all. Very, very minimally. I mean, I, I, you know, because, because the, task producing part of it was such a sort of separate universe. I was like a little bit ahead. I was, I was spending a lot of time worrying on Monday about what we needed to shoot Wednesday. So it was more of a sort of advancer role in that respect. But I mean, uh, such an education in, in so many ways, um, because, you know, unlike the game shows that I had come out of, it was, a game where anything could impact the rules of the game that you were playing at any given moment. Yeah. And I mean, obviously there's so many different kinds of competition shows and, you know, you went from a studio game show, which is so much more self-contained has its own types of challenges, but it's, you know, you're in one place, like you said, to New York city, where it's literally a playground that you're navigating. I can imagine that's completely insane. And I know just from, from filming, in New York, just, just the chaos of New York alone. Like you said, it's just, yeah, it's, it's madness. I can't wait for that chaos to be back. I hope we yeah, get to see it. I soon. miss it too. I, I yeah. every time I'm watching a show or anything with New York, I have a pang that is not relatable to anything else, but New York, yeah. you know? So I did four seasons on the apprentice and then, you know, was ready to not live in a different city from my wife. Um, uh, and came back and at that point sort of worked on a couple of other Mark Burnett shows. Um, uh, I think most notably, are you smarter than a fifth grader, which was a, like such an interesting, such an interesting journey and a really nice return to studio game. Um, and did you help develop that? I did help develop that. At that point I was sort of starting to transition into a development role too, although I, I did serve a full-time role on that particular show. That was a show um, that happened on a timetable that you almost never see anymore. 
Um, and uh, and it's interesting to think back. So we pitched that show to Mike Darnell. I believe it was between Thanksgiving and Christmas. It was like at the very, very, very end of the year. Um, and you know, it was a it was a pitch. We didn't we didn't have a host. Like we kind of had a set. Like we were sort of there on the format. And in a way that just never happens anymore, Mike was like, great, we're going to do it. I'm ordering it straight to series. How late and, was he for the pitch, though? Oh, I can't even <laughs> recall that at this point. It didn't matter. I'm that, kidding. That was just isn't it, that I know that's his yeah. re- I've never pitched to him, but I know that's his reputation. Yeah. Um, so, so, it was, so it was quicker it was, than sand. It was one of those it was one of those great just sort of your greenlit types of conversations. And then he said, and I want it on in February which meant like right before the holidays, we had like a couple of months to figure out the whole thing. Um, and uh, and I, I remember Mark, who was like, as always incredibly poised in the room saying, Mike, we're so excited. That does seem really fast. And Mike said, no problem. I still want it. Um, uh, we're gonna put it on whenever we can put it on, but if we can get it on by February, I'll put you on after idol. And Mark said, we'll have it on in February. And we did like, and so it was just, were you working around the clock? Yeah. But you know what, when I think back about that particular show, um, it's a good reminder that sometimes when you're forced to make decisions fast, you actually make the best decisions. (laughs) So I so agree. Like a lot, a lot of, a lot of sort of like, um, a, a lot of the time, particularly, with a format, if you have too long to kick at it, you you start sort of second guessing what made it good in the first place. And in this case, we had absolutely no time. So I think as a result, in some ways, the sort of cleanest, clearest version of the show emerged. Um, I agree. It makes you more efficient. You know, it's like packing. You know, if you only have 20 minutes to pack, you're going to do it really well. If you have three days to pack, you're like, well, maybe I should bring this. Maybe I should bring that. Yeah, I mean, I'm experiencing it in a different way now, not to skip like a zillion years ahead, but, but um, you know, uh, on Love Island, where we're airing Tuesday what we shoot Monday, like editorially, you are just making decisions in, in effectively real time. And, and I like to think that benefits the show rather than diminishes it. So obviously not everything, like there's amazing documentaries that take 10 years to make and they should, but um, but but fifth grader was really a lesson in just like when everybody is rowing in the same direction really fast, it can actually be to the benefit of the project. And you also notoriously um, developed Shark Tank, helped develop Shark Tank as well, which I don't know if you've heard from my various podcasts is my favorite reality show. I did. I did know that. <laughs> I love I, Shark Tank. Obsessed um, with it. Yeah. It, you know. To to some extent, we developed Shark Tank, but also to some extent, it was a show that already had worked in right. eleven countries, right? right? So, so it was a format. But but again, what's so interesting, and you know, I know you've told the story other places, so I'm not going to make you make you do it again. But but again, I think that the larger story, speaking even like you said to your role now at ITV, is yes, you can get a format from another country, but to make it the format that will work here in America, yeah often needs a lot of tweaking. Yeah, I mean, in that case, I think the real magic ended up being in the casting, both in terms of, you know, 
how we learned to cast the entrepreneurs. And then of course, as to who ended up being the sharks, um, the mechanics of the format are pretty much even to this day, the sort of basic mechanics of Dragon's Den. And then before that, Office Tiger, if, I mean, you're a student of the format, so you probably know that's how it started, um, was was a Japanese format called called Office Tiger. It was the very first one. And it was Japanese, but I forgot the name of it. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's a great point. And, and you know, I've said this before, but it it really is ultimately, you can have a great format, but without those sharks that have made it work from day one, and, you know, they've played around with it, but just a little bit, really, that to yeah. me is why it's successful. I mean, the format's great, but without the sharks, I mean- I watch it way more for the sharks than I do for the deals yep. or, you know, and I do I for the think, entrepreneurs. I think credit to a lot of people, including ABC for casting Kevin O'Leary and Robert Herjavec, who nobody knew here. It's not like they were going to be sort of promotable names, but I think they saw the value in that existing relationship and the fact that they had done the format before. It just gave the rest of the cast a running start because it's like they already had you know, absorbed the dynamic. And so from minute one, you got, you got good content. One of my favorites is Barbara. And there's a notorious story of her writing this letter to Mark Burnett, basically saying, I'm your gal. I, you know, I, I don't know if he turned her down the first time or what, but were you there for that? That's whole so funny. Thing? I actually, that story is news to me. Oh, that, really? That I'm, yeah, it's, I mean, that could internet. well be true. Yeah, yeah, it's not even a rumor. Like, I think the letters that yeah. you can find it online. Yeah, she basically, she kind of begged for the job and thank God because she's such a great shark. Yeah, yeah. It's so I, that was a show that was a pleasure to be involved with. And I think one of the one of the interesting things that it's ended up doing is giving the general viewer a framework by which to understand business. Like, it's it's really just like, it, it it performs a service in a certain respect because I can say even as like an educated person, there, there were things I didn't understand about basic business until I worked on that show. Like I didn't really properly know what the valuation of a company was or what a multiple was. Like I didn't, nobody ever taught me that in school. Um, and I think it's like very valuable for kids, especially to actually get a basic understanding of it in an entertainment form. Could not agree more. I've learned so much from that show. I've also learned yeah. a lot about negotiating. Um, it, it, I love it. I absolutely love it. So moving on. Okay. So you spend, you know, a good bulk of your career on the producing side. And then yep. at some point, how does uh, Turner happen? Like all of a sudden you're a network executive. So what was that process? Did you want yeah. to go to the buying side? I mean, I would love to tell you that there's been designed to any of this, but, uh, you know, I got a call from Michael Wright, who, uh, is a mentor and a friend. And I had gotten to know during my time at Mark Burnett. Um, and he, he was basically like, you know, Hey, we're about to do this in a real way. These networks have dabbled with unscripted, but we're making a big commitment to actually doing it. Is it something you would ever be interested in? And, you know, not to sort of personally overshare, but I was driving to San Diego in the rain with my wife on our way to let her say goodbye to her grandmother. And it was just like one of those moments where it's like, you know, if you needed reminders that life is short, you had them in front of you. Um, and it, it just sort of struck me at the right time. I'd been with Mark 
you know, between producing and then in development a long time, like probably close to a decade. So uh, it wasn't, it wasn't anything I was seeking. It was something that was uh, just dropped in my lap, but it felt like the right thing to say yes to. And so we, we all figured it out. And then I jumped over to a, a four-year adventure on the network side. What was the biggest growing pain that first year, having had really no experience? Obviously, you were pitching and you know you knew some of it, but obviously, it's completely different when you get into that corporate structure and you're working for a larger company. What was the thing that you had to adjust to most that was sort of the most jarring? I mean, I think the thing that I had to adjust to most, I never completely adjusted to. And if I look back at my time as a network exec, it's the thing that I would correct, which is... Um, as a producer, you're like excited about a show if it's a great show. And if you're a network exec, it has to be a great show for the brand or it's not a great show. And like, I think I got better at that, but I never actually got that good at it. And even up until the very end, I was pushing for shows because they were great shows. Um, and that's just not, it's just not the job. So that's the, that was the hardest creative adjustment to make for sure. Because if you see something great, you want it to live. But like, it, if it can't live within the ecosystem you're tending, you probably shouldn't greenlight that thing. Um, yeah, I, but at the same time, you know, our our business and content is fluid, right? So it may seem like a really weird fit or out of the box for what was supposed to be your brand, but maybe that's the next huge hit. A hundred percent. And like, there have been brands over time that have done that more frequently than others. I would like point to A&E specifically as a network that's just obviously reinvented what its biggest hit is in unconventional ways over and over and over again. I mean, for, you know, things as diverse as Dog the Bounty Hunter, Storage Wars, and Duck Dynasty to have been the biggest hits on A&E, there are those sort of places that that do that really well. But I, I do think looking back, uh, it, it would have been to my benefit to try to understand those existing audiences a little bit better than I did. Um, that said, I really loved doing it. We got to make some shows that I'm super, super proud of, including one in Cold Justice that keeps going and is on its second network now on Oxygen and like just a show uh, that's a, a career highlight for me. Um, the other, The other big adjustment, I think, on the network side, and I'm sure all of our network friends would probably agree with this is it's just sort of hard to figure out what success means in an environment that's changing this fast. Like, you know, in, in a four broadcast network sort of, you know, 5.0, 6.0 demo rate. Like, I mean, you knew what success meant, but even in the time I was at Turner, everything was becoming so diffuse that, just trying to make sense of numbers and understand whether things were succeeding or not, I, I found very perplexing. I mean, I think there are people within those networks who have a better grasp on it than, than I managed to because they also understand how it can translate into money. But that was like, that was a little bit disorienting for me. I mean, I think as a salesperson, you know you succeed because you've sold something and that's very black and white even right, now. Right, the metrics are clear. Yeah, I, I I found I found the metrics on the network side, at least personally, much much harder to grasp. Well, especially because the the bar keeps moving, right? They, in a way, it gets lower and lower because of the bifurcation of 
places that, you know, the expectations even three or four years ago for what was a good number is now probably a lot lower than that. Yeah, it's why it's actually, I think, sometimes weirdly refreshing being back on this side that this that the streamers don't tell you anything. Um, uh, you know, when we were when we were embarking on Queer Eye for Netflix, which was our first show for Netflix at ITV, we've since done many more and and love that relationship. Um, I remember us asking, how will we know if our show succeeds? I can't remember if it was Jen or Brandon or, or whoever, but the answer I'll always remember, which was when we order more. That's awesome. And I was like, what a great okay, answer. Great. What yeah. a great answer. I'm, I'm friends with David Collins and, um, and he and I had lunch like right when they were talking about bringing it back. I mean, even before the ITV relationship and everything. And I thought like, and this was before everyone and their mother was rebooting everything. So it wasn't like, of course, you know, it was more like, oh my God, that was almost the beginning of the whole reboot renaissance. And I thought like, I can't think of a show that I'm more excited to see as a reboot. And it was just, it delivered. Did you know when you, when you were doing that, that it was going to be as big a hit as it became again? Oh, goodness, no. And I mean, your excitement about it being rebooted was also made, it, it was also what made rebooting it terrifying because to have gotten that reboot wrong, I mean, would have been, you know, such a shame. But but David and the rest of the guys at Scout had really a very clear vision from the get-go as to how to contemporize it. And then just to sort of reiterate from the Shark Tank conversation, we got casting magic. And like, you know, we can pat ourselves on the back for that, but some of it's just kismet and those guys are amazing. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a great sort of first thing. So we, we didn't really cover that little oh, period sorry. of, no, no, it's okay. Just what you, what made you go back? Did you just miss the producing side? Um, yeah. I mean, things had there, this will shock you. There was regime change inside a network. Um, so, uh, so some things had changed at Turner. There was going to be quite a lot less unscripted or so I thought what's been interesting is since my departure, Michael Bloom got to do a lot more and now Corey is doing a ton. Um, but so at the moment, it, yeah, at the, at, at that moment, it did seem like things were going to really ramp down on TNT. There was going to be less to do on TBS. And then again, you know, the magic of an incoming call from an old friend, in this case, Adam Scher, who, uh, you know, as part of an ITV transition had sort of been elevated over there and they were looking for somebody to head up ITV Entertainment, which was the main sort of general entertainment label. Um, and, you know, uh, once more, just sort of uh, the right bit of timing. So so you were brought in. So Brent, was Brent running ITV when you came in? Yes, Brent was running ITV when I came in. And so he was, at that point, the CEO of the company. David George was president and Adam was CCO. So they hired me to run one of the labels, which I did for a couple of years. And then when Brent left, everybody sort of took a step up and I stepped into that CCO role that Adam had been in. And that was 2018. So I said this in my intro, but you oversee a lot of um, companies within the company. What do you call them? You call them, do you call them labels? And labels, okay. yeah, is the usual I term that we that. use. Yeah, I, didn't, I, didn't, I haven't heard that one before. So yeah. you, you've got Left Field, Sirens, Think Factory, High Noon, Good Caper. I mean, geez, Louise, that is a lot of content. How many series 
does that like if, let's say today because I know it changes you know month to month. Yeah. Today, how many series do you have across those companies that are in production? You know, at some point. I mean, I think across across the group, I'm sure I'm going to get these numbers. Well, more or less, we're wrong. ballparking. We're but, ballparking. But we're ballparking across the group. It's something like 30 or 40 series a year, and it's certainly hundreds of hours of television a year. So it's a very big operation. I think what's been fun for my brain in particular is that we're really across basically every genre. And as a true indie, we get to work with basically every group. I mean, we have to be good because we have no sort of, you know, major US corporate group who's necessarily invested in our success, but it is really fun to be able to sell to all of the SFAs, to all of the broadcasters, all of the cable groups, as, as long as the shows are good. So something that I've always wondered about is when there's a group like an ITV that's overseeing these labels, you know, and all three media um, that has the same type of structure, how do you kind of decide? I mean, there's a lot of overlap, right? So I know Good Caper does um, mostly, you know, true crime, but yep. Sirens came from true crime and also does true crime. So how do you decide? How do you sort of divide and conquer and, and make sure everybody's still happy? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think actually one of our tasks of the last couple of years has been to try to diminish overlap in that respect and really give each of those labels uh, a very clear identity on the marketplace. Um, you know, I think there was an era of reality TV that rewarded generalists, that rewarded companies that sort of did a little bit of everything. And as a larger company, we do do a little bit of every, everything. But I think now when buyers hear from developers, they prefer to hear from somebody who, first of all, is prioritizing them, but I think also is the best at something. That's at least the sort of theory of how we've set this up. So, you know, you can't, you can't totally stop creative people from wanting to be expansive. And if people have passion projects, they have passion projects and they should do it. But but we actually have really deliberately tried to give each of those labels a very strong core identity as the, as to the type of programming they primarily pursue. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that it is such a crowded marketplace. It's sort of a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, you know, I'm sort of somebody that has been known for true crime in the last five years and just so happens that five of my series now are true crime, but I'm desperate to be known for something else and do other things and I'm pitching everything else. And yet the ones that keep selling are the true crime. So it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. And especially if you enjoy it and you're known for it. But at the other hand, we do love, I mean, part of why I, you probably got into this business too, is you love to do a lot of things and you don't want to be pigeonholed. So it's kind of hard, right? In that sense to, to really say like, stay in your lane. Yeah, it is. And it's and it's why there has to be a little bit of give in it. I mean, I think I, there's that Google sort of paradigm, which is that everybody should be doing 70% core business, 20% adjacent business, and then 10% whatever they want. Wait, and I don't know I, that. I don't know that. Okay, I'm I writing that down. I mean, I'm, I might not have... How am I just hearing this? <laughs> I think I have those percentages, right? Um, if I don't, I'm close. But yeah, so that's that's their sort of... Um, working paradigm for all of their employees. And I think I think it's a good one for specialist developers too. I mean, the 10%, whatever you want, you have to have that. Otherwise, you end up sort of 
talking to yourself a little bit too much. <laughs> right. Never a good thing. So yeah. are you good if I ask you just kind of like general questions about the business? Fire away. Okay. Yeah. So where do you think we are now in unscripted in terms of like, what are you seeing as the trends and where do you see it going in the next few years? Just from your experience, you're really on the front lines. I mean, you're, you're talking to the agents and the executives every day at the networks. I mean, so of course, no matter who you're pitching, you're now pitching a streamer. And that's the biggest change, right? So I, I think that transition is finally uh, finalizing this year. And, you know, obviously we've been working with Netflix and Amazon and HBO Max and people who are explicitly streamers for some time. But this is the year where it's like, literally, if you're pitching NBC, you're also pitching Peacock. And if you're pitching ABC, you're also pitching Hulu. And like, that is totally different. And it's different, not just from a business standpoint, which of course we could talk about, but even from a storytelling standpoint and in some ways that are great and in some ways that are complicated. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I'm contending with from a development standpoint on so many projects right now is streamers not necessarily wanting traditional closed ended episodes because it's an invitation to go away and never come back. So how do you take what would have been a closed ended show and now figure out ways to meaningfully cliffhang it? It's like sort of, things that have to do with consumption that start to then double back on the creative process. It's all fascinating, but it's definitely um, you're racing to keep up with how people are actually viewing. Right. And it also affects how you're going to develop stuff. Because like you said, if you have a format that's completely self-contained, all of a sudden does that mean you can't pitch it to five of the seven streamers or whatever? Now it's like 15 of the right. 20, but or, you know. or, or, you know, what it means is you should probably have a big think about that before you go in. And if there's a different way to cut it, then know that before you actually pitch the show. There you go. So in terms of, you actually said, um, the business, the business end of it is also different. What did you mean by that? Um, well, uh, now with sort of larger ITV hat on companies like ITV and Fremantle and, you know, Banerjee and Amalshine, uh, have, had an international formats business for a long time that gets complicated once everybody wants content on a streamer that's distributed globally. So that's the, that's the main business complication, right? If we were pitching the voice today, um, whoever we were pitching it to would probably want it for the world from the outset. So that certainly changes how business gets done and people are figuring their way through it. I think, some of the streamers will start to localize, even though their preference is to have everything globally. So like Amazon did a season of Love Island just for France, because you can't own Love Island globally at this point, but it's certainly not how they're built. They're built to distribute their content to the world and, and have exclusivity over it for the world. Do you think that just again, in a, not necessarily in your role as ITV, but just as you as a person in the industry, your opinion. Yes. Um, do you think that, you know, the prediction was a few years ago, the streamers are going to come in, all the little cable networks are going, are going to go away. Um, you know, it happened with like an Esquire, but it really hasn't happened yet with any of the other ones. There's always speculation, but everyone's kind of still in place. What do you think will happen on the cable landscape? I mean, I do think, uh, I do think there's, longevity to it um, uh, from a business model standpoint, they're obviously being 
squeezed both on the sub fees side and on the advertising side right now, which, which really makes it tough. I think what everybody's trying to figure out is which of those brands are strong enough to exist both as linear cable networks and as squares on a streaming screen. Um, you know, the other thing that I think is going to be really interesting as we go forward is the rise of AVOD, um, which I think is happening super fast now. And what that may ironically sort of lead to is the cable bundle sort of reasserting itself, but on demand, if that makes sense. Right. Like, yeah, because no, then you'll have, you yeah. yeah, then you'll have um, Peacock where you're watching ads. I mean, it's like, it's like a prior linear experience. The only really big difference is you're just watching your shows when you want to. Now, I know you said earlier that things have, in a way, in your career just kind of happened. And, you know, it's not like you had your five-year plan and you went for it and you did it. But as far as where you are now with ITV, like, what are your goals within the company? And then do you have sort of a long-term goal of where you want to be in 10 years? Do you want to be hanging out on the beach and... I don't know, reading poetry <laughs> or do you want to keep at, doing this? At, at this point, I would like to hang out at anywhere outside my house. That's my, that's my sort of main goal for 2021. Um, from an ITV standpoint, I think we're very eager to continue to form interesting alliances with people from other worlds. So, uh, you know, we've had uh, a relationship with Jimmy Kimmel. We've had a great relationship with Dick Wolf. I think there's just so much energy around like names from the feature space and the scripted space, um, the sports space and how to invite them into unscripted, that that's a big focus for us here in America. And then it's also sort of like, how do you work best as a global studio entity? And like, how do we take advantage of both knowledge and capabilities around the world? Um, and, you know, to me, that sort of dovetails into if I do have a desire for myself, uh, it is to be more involved in and awake to what's happening in production communities all around the world and not just in the U.S. I've always been somebody who's really sort of excited by what's happening internationally. And it's a, it's a priority for me to to be even more involved in that in this next stage of my career. Well, last question and, and dovetails off of what you just said. I mean, one of the things that's united us in the last year internationally has been COVID and this pandemic. What's the one thing that you think will change in our industry now because of the effects of this last year with the pandemic? Um, I think we're going to be Zoom pitching most of the time from now on. And how I do think you feel about that? I feel pretty good about it. I mean, I think back to how much time I spent schlepping around LA and I'm not like eager to get back to that. It was not a super good use of time or probably good for one's mental or physical health. So uh, I do feel coming out of this that most pitches can be done by Zoom and that'll be that'll be different if I'm right. Uh, I think I think the sort of other prediction, which is much less business travel, I I'm much more skeptical about. I, I think people are gonna wanna see each other in that way again. Um, and certainly <laughs> once it's possible to get back on planes, there's going to be a near term sort of spurt of everybody getting back on planes. Um, you know, I think fundamentally one of the very biggest questions is going to be about remote work because we've learned so much can be done remotely. So, you know, does that give us the opportunity to 
cultivate creatives who don't necessarily want to move from Austin or Detroit or you name it to LA or New York. I'd like to think at least in some way that would be possible. I mean, I I think it would probably be good for the industry um, and maybe even good for the country, not to overstate it. No, I completely agree. I I interviewed um, a director. Her name is Sharon Lease. I don't know if you've ever worked with her. Mm -hmm. She directed Transhood. She lives in Kansas, which, you know, I was, when I interviewed her, I said, you know, how, how have you been working in our industry for the last however many years? And she said the same way everybody's been working in the last year. And so I yeah. think you're right. And I think, again, she made a beautiful film. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it um, about trans kids in Kansas um, in Kansas City. And what do you what a unique perspective? Right. I mean, that yeah. story in New York or L.A. is, you know, not really that innovative, but we're actually, we're actually working on something with Sharon. So there you go. There you go. So, yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think that says it all though, right? Yeah. For, for corporate employees, I think they will work out of LA and New York and London as they've always done, right? Like offices will reopen office life will resume. There's a reason why there are those sort of centers, but if we can engage creatives and storytellers in a more sort of deep and regular way where they live, I think that will be something really good that will have come out of this. And if, and if those people, those directors like Sharon can make great livings being in other parts of the country, we're going to get different kinds of stories. I think there's so much alienation um, in this country in part because uh, you know, there's, geographical divides that inform storytelling and narrative divides. And if there's something we can do to alleviate some of that, it'll be to our benefit. I love that. I like ending on a positive note too. <laughs> that's, that's very uplifting. And, and I agree with you. Is there anything that you want to add before we, before we wrap? No, up? I'm so, I'm so, uh, I'm so glad I, I crashed. It's been really a pleasure chatting with you. And and I appreciate everything that you're doing to just get so many vantage points from inside this nutty industry. Like you've really, uh, uh, you've done an amazing job sort of letting different people speak to their perspectives on it. Oh, thanks. That means a lot. I'm, I'm trying, doing my part, trying to anyway. <laughs>